1 Samuel 10. We're continuing in verses 17 through 27. The title of the message is Dangerous Path. Um, many of these messages have been along the same vein. Uh, we're building to a climax here. And it might be kind of a subtle climax, uh, but, but it's the climax nonetheless as Saul is, is becoming the first king in Israel. Last week, we considered the filling of the Holy Spirit for ministry. We saw Saul filled with the Spirit of God, that he was given a new heart. The Holy Spirit uh, filled him in order to prophesy, filled him in order to become the king that he needed to be for Israel. And as we did so, we mentioned three character traits from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, that describe someone, particularly we might say in today, in the church age, who is filled with the Spirit. And Paul is teaching the Ephesians, uh, the uh, church of Ephesus, the, the Ephesian believers, and he says that the three elements of being filled with the Spirit, as he commands them to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, was that they would praise the Lord, that they would have praise in their hearts to God, that singing and making melody in their hearts to the Lord, that secondly, they would have thanksgiving in their hearts to God, and then finally, that they would be humble, both before God and man, that they would have a spirit of humble submission to God. Now, for the several weeks prior to that, we had been considering various aspects of Israel's rejection of God as their king. We considered the definitive election of Israel, that they had been elected to a purpose and that they had rejected that purpose. We had considered as well um, that God was allowing Israel to go against his perfect will and, and them sitting squarely in his permissive will. All of those things are unquestioning manifestations of their rebellion, a rebellion which will compel the dire negative consequences that we'll see in the chapters to come. There's going to be a, another chapter of happiness, of joy. The people get their king and things go well and then all of a sudden things stop going well. All of a sudden Israel starts figuring out why God didn't want them to have a king. And Saul begins to have some real problems. You know, it's rightly said that life is a journey. We walk through life and it's step by step. Jesus Christ said, Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. He told us to think about today, to stay on track today, to do what we need to do today, and, and we're on a path. And Israel has put it, it herself as a nation on a very dangerous path here. Samuel is going to highlight that again today in a different way, and we're going to see it highlighted in itself. The path is going to begin defining itself. Samuel's been warning them, and now we're going to start seeing those, those little glimmers of his warning starting to come to pass through the events of 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 27 today. Let's take a look at it together. We'll read the whole passage, um, verses 17 through 27. Please follow along as I read. And Samuel called the people together to the Lord, unto the Lord, and to Mizpah. And said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversaries and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. 
Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken, when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. We pick up today in verse 17 with Samuel gathering the people together to Mizpah. Now earlier in the text, earlier in chapter 10, we saw Samuel tell Saul to meet him in seven days in Gilgal. And there, uh, Samuel would meet with Saul and they would reestablish the covenant in the kingdom. That, that has not happened yet. Gilgal, we mentioned last time, is of deep significance. We'll be looking at that in the next chapter as they get to Gilgal, that place of rolling. There the nation would refresh the covenant between God and the people under their new king. And so we just spoke briefly of that last week. We'll consider it more next week. But for today, our focus is on this city of Mizpah. Mizpah came up in uh, 1 Samuel 7 as the place where the people experienced a national revival. I don't know if you recall, um, the Philistines were coming up against the nation and, and Samuel, it was 20 years after the Ark of God had been taken and Samuel compels them and he says, if you will turn to the Lord with all of your heart, then the Lord will save you. And in fact, they do turn to the Lord and um, there, there was a great natural disaster or a natural event and the Philistines were very um, concerned by this and they were their morale was just destroyed and then Israel rose up and defeated them and there was a great victory and they came to Mizpah for all of that. Now it is interesting, you can call it irony, you can call it design, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but now we see them coming to Mizpah and many years later and the king who represents the very rejection of God's plan for Israel is announced in the same place where God had given them a great victory. A place where not many years prior, God had delivered the people out of the hands of their enemies, not because they had a king over them, but because they had humbled themselves before God. I believe it was probably, if nothing else, a stroke of irony that this would happen at Mizpah. And as we continue in the text... Uh, the people gather together and Samuel speaks to them. And his first words are words of remembrance of all that God has done for them. And in many ways, everything that Mizpah represents. He says in verse 18, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. Uh, um, Samuel is invoking the authority of God here. You'll see all throughout the Old Testament a prophetic template. When a man sought to represent God, 
when he sought to declare himself as a prophet of God and he was giving the message of God to the people, he would lead off his message by saying, Thus saith the Lord. And when you heard that, when Israel heard, Thus saith the Lord, they knew that this man was claiming prophetic authority. They knew that he was claiming to be a spokesperson for God. And the moment that a prophet said, Thus saith the Lord, he submitted himself to the divine expectation of the prophet, which was that he would never be wrong. That if anything that he said ever didn't, if anything he promised would come to pass did not come to pass, if anything he said would happen did not happen, he was to immediately be stoned. Because he had spoken in the name of the Lord, but he did not speak for the Lord because it did not come to pass. He was a false prophet. And so Samuel invokes this authority. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. He's one of the first to do so in Scripture as one of those first prophets of the Lord. And he reminds the nation of exactly what God had done for them. He says, remember my redemption. Remember the redemption of God. Remember how God had delivered you from suffering, from captivity, from the very deepest and darkest days of misery in the history of the nation. God reminds them that He brought them out of that, that He chose them, that He loved them, that He raised up a leader, that He empowered that leader being Moses, and that He brought them out of Egypt with a strong and a mighty hand. They didn't deserve it, but God did it. They didn't earn it, but God did it. He provided for their every need. To that day, He had rescued them from every enemy, They were in the land of promise. They were strong. They were where they were. Any blessing that they had was nothing less than the gift of God to them. But then notice what he says in verse 19. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord, by your tribes and by your thousands. What is it about our human nature that is so prone to forget? Have you ever noticed that little nuance of human nature where when confronted with the generous and gracious gracious acts of God or of others on our behalf, they tend to kind of come and go and then we don't really remember them much anymore? We can minimize those gracious and kind acts. We can even convince ourselves that somehow we deserve them and then far too quickly just forget about them. What's interesting about this nuance of human nature is it doesn't go both ways. When God or when people are so good and so kind to us, we tend to forget about it rather quickly. But when someone hurts us or fails us or damages us, Our same human nature can take that offense and blow it up beyond any reasonable proportion, can't it? Blame. We can self-justify and we can use that offense as our motivation for our interaction with that person for months or for years or even for a lifetime. That all the kindness that someone had done to us can be forgotten in a matter of moments, but the, the offenses against us by that person will be held on to for a lifetime. This is human nature. And God is reminding them here 
Everything that you've been given, Israel, everything that you've been given was given by me. Any blessing that you're holding on to is a blessing given by me, Israel. And how fast were they to forget and to say, God, you don't care about us. God, we need a king. God had promised to rule over them and they say nay, but set a king over us. Contrast that with God's character. Mankind, he's quick to forget kindness. He is even quicker to magnify offenses. But think of God. How he describes himself in Scripture. How he manifests himself in Scripture. Quick to show kindness. And even quicker to forgive offenses. Samuel says, God himself has saved you. And you said to God, no, thank you, we'll take a king. Maybe the king will save us. Maybe the king will make us strong. Maybe the king will be everything that we think we want to be. We'll revisit that in our application today. Now it's time for the great reveal. Who is the man that God has chosen to be Israel's king? Samuel first calls the tribes together. He says, gather by your thousands, gather into tribes, and Benjamin is taken. The tribe of Benjamin is called. Now it's likely that this was not just Samuel slowly revealing this to Israel. It's likely that he wasn't just sitting there saying, gather together, okay, Benjamin, gather together, okay, Matri. Likely there was a process of God showing a sign or a wonder to, to validate this in Israel's mind. You say, well, pastor, why is that? Well, first off, we'll see a little bit later in the text that when they can't find Saul, the one who God has chosen, it says they inquired of the Lord further and God said he is among the stuff. So it, it implicitly shows us that they, ha- they are inquiring of the Lord here. But also, you know Israel. You've been reading your Bible. We've gone through just for Samuel, but, but you, you think about the, the Pentateuch, you think about Judges. Israel was hinged on signs. They had to have signs. They needed something to prove what God was trying to tell them. And so it's likely here that, that Samuel was doing something to prove that God had chosen Benjamin, that God had chosen each, each of these um, families and, and then all the way to Saul. Most likely something like casting lots or whatever it might be, some way of, of showing a sign that it was God. Maybe it was even the Urim and Thummim that he was using, that mysterious Urim and Thummim that we really don't know much about in Scripture. Regardless, Benjamin is taken and the nation is not contesting this. They're just eager to find out who the king is. And then the family of Matri was taken and the scriptures tell us that when that family came near, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Now here's the thing. It may be a surprise to the nation that Saul, the son of Kish, out of the tribe of Benjamin, would be their king. But remember, this isn't supposed to be a surprise to Saul, right? I mean, he's already been told. We, we saw this last week. He was prophesying with the prophets, uh, signs, clear signs that he was to be king. Uh, a week before that, we saw him sitting with Samuel. It is not a um, surprise to Saul that he has been chosen king. It's not like one of those game shows or, or whatever it might be where there's a, a grand... Uh, shocking revelation as to who won or whatever the case may be. This is, this is like the guy who gets the call that says, hey, there's a reward show coming up and you're going to get something, so you should probably be there. The guy knows he's getting something. The guy knows, Saul knows he's going to be chosen king. But Saul is absolutely nowhere to be found. 
However, since they had been inquiring of the Lord, it wasn't too hard to inquire just a little bit further. Lord, where is this king that you have chosen for us? Where is Saul? And the Lord, verse 22 says, answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. So we don't know what this stuff is. We don't know where this stuff is. There's thousands of people there in Israel, but but Saul had taken his very large frame and he had effectively hidden himself uh, so that no one could find him. And he had hidden himself among the stuff. Not a very kingly thing to do, is it? I mean, if, if, if you were going to be choosing a king, you wouldn't go and find the guy cowering in the corner and say, he's our guy. As I consider this scene, it is somewhat comical to me. There are certain moments in your life where even if you really have no confidence in yourself, your future is reliant upon your ability to show a level of confidence. As a pastor, I'm not always um, 100% confident about a direction that I might be going. You pray and you, you trust the Lord and, and you lead, but I'm a young man and I'm leading a young church and, and uh, sometimes experience has to be your teacher and these sorts of things. And there are times where I can just come before the membership and say, I don't really know what to do here. What do you all think? But there are other times where the church needs a leader. Someone who just reflects confidence. Even if, even if I don't have the deepest confidence, there are times where I have to stand up and reflect confidence to keep the people going. This, I would think, would be one of those times where Saul would probably benefit from having a little bit of confidence, even if he didn't feel it, where he would benefit from from having a little bit of of leadership here, a little bit of direction here. Israel is excitedly waiting for their strong and powerful new king to make his grand entrance to represent them before the nations, and he's hiding among the stuff. And he had hidden himself so effectively that the people only knew where he was because the God of the universe told them when they inquired of him. Now, all humor aside, though, there are indeed some serious lessons that we can learn from Saul's fear concerning things which God has called him to accomplish. We should never fear the will of God. We should never fear the direction in which God has taken us. We who know the character of God know that we can trust God and where God leads, He enables and He provides. But when it's time to step in and when it's time to step up, the fears and doubts of this life can still creep into our hearts and make us kind of like a Saul, unwilling to assume the responsibilities that God has given to us more desirous to hide among the stuff than to stand up and do what God has asked us to do. Maybe there's a time in your life where you were with an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit laid it upon your heart to to witness to them and you know you should, but instead you went and hid among the stuff. Maybe there's a time in your life where your church needed you to take on a leadership role or your family needed something of you and, and uh, you, you felt as though you should take on your, yourself this responsibility, but you got a little fearful and you went and you hid among the stuff. God had called Saul here. God had promised him through the prophet of God, through signs and wonders, that he was called to do this work. And the fact that he was hiding among the stuff is as much a reflection of his lack of faith as it is his character. I remind you that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible tells us, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We know when we find ourselves in the face of God's clear direction or God's clear expectations upon us as ministers, as believers, as leaders in our homes, our families, wherever it might be, our jobs, that when we hide among the stuff in fear, this fear is not an outworking of God in us, but rather our own lack of trust in God's power or God's promises or God's provision or God's protections. We know that that spirit of fear is not of God because 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And this is where Saul found himself on that day. He found himself hiding among the stuff. And if Saul's actions with respect to this hiding thing were not enough, the people's reaction is really interesting as well. I find their people's reaction almost as comical as the fact that Saul was, uh, I, can, I think of this, this man that stands head and shoulders above Israel hiding in the stuff and they have to inquire of the Lord and God kind of points his divine finger and says he's right here and Saul, yeah, oh yeah, 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 I'm here. Sorry, I just, you know, whatever, dropped quarter. Well, I don't know what, what he said or what he might have been thinking, but he's hiding among the stuff. But, but you would think that this would start to make Israel a little nervous, right? It sure make me nervous about my leader. If my leader is hiding among the stuff, I'm, I'm giving up God for this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dethroning God for this. And yet their response... <laughs> As soon as they see him, they are such a carnal people. They're so stuck on the external. Verse 23 says that when they finally got him, he stood among the people and he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and up. So, so maybe they were a little concerned, but then they see him and they're like, okay, where is he? Oh, that's him right there. And all of a sudden, this big, you know, the scripture said he was tall. The scripture said he was well favored. He's a big handsome, strong guy. He's a warrior-looking guy. And, well, forget about the fact he was hiding among the stuff. This guy looked the part. And immediately, the people whose discernment seemed to be a little more than an extension of their superficial desires were just, they were, they were so pleased. Here's our king. Here he is. He was, he was hiding among the stuff. This is not, not really great king. Well, it's okay. He's big. He's... he's it's great. So Samuel tells the people in verse 24, see him. This is the guy the king, the, the Lord has chosen. See that there's none like him. You wanted the guy that can represent you before the nations. You wanted your poster child. You wanted the one who can stand up and look big and look great. Here he is, Israel. And all the people shouted, God save the king. Yes, this is him. Now, if you were to look into the Hebrew text, you wouldn't find God save the king. Let me mention that. In the Hebrew text, it says specifically or, or literally, let the king live. If you were to look at more modern translations, they'd probably have long live the king in the Bible. That's certainly a, a better, more literal translation of the text. The King James Bible here chose to use a phrase that would connect more closely with what the readers would understand rather than a word-for-word -word translation. Uh, they do do this from time to time. Now, they did put a footnote 
If you had a King James Version with footnotes, which I don't know if they even print one today, but in, in the footnote of the King James Bible, they did offer that alternate translation, long live the king. But uh, God save the king was a far more British way to describe what was going on here. And this happens from time to time in, in the King James Bible, that though it is a formal equivalent translation, a word-for-word equivalent, they do take license sometimes with these euphemisms. Um, in fact, British... The British National Anthem is, well, right now it's God Save the Queen, right? But if they were to get another king, it would become God Save the King. Uh, so that, it's a very British expression, God Save the King, something that the people would have well related to back in 1611 when the Bible was initially translated. And so that is why it's written the way it is. But do know that that's not a literal translation of what was said there. The literal translation, better reflected perhaps in some other Bibles, is long live the king. As we consider this scenario, Saul's now standing there, head and shoulders above the people. The people are crying, long live the king. They're so happy to have their king. And the scriptures tell us in verse 25 that Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom. And he wrote it in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. And he sent the people away to their houses. Uh, Presumably, this book had the expectations of how the king was to interact with the people in relation to God. See, the king, Saul here, or any other king in Israel's history, uh, had a unique relationship in that he was becoming the king of a theocracy. God was not, under any circumstances, stepping off of his throne in Israel because a king was coming onto the scene. God uh, understood that Israel had rejected him as king, but they were still obligated to their covenant with him through the Mosaic law. The king was not able to usurp the Mosaic law in his authority. And most likely that was what this book was intended to reflect. It was something to the effect of Samuel writing down, you are now the king of Israel. The Mosaic law is still in effect. God is still God. The law is still your governor. So the king, in many ways, is established by God not to create the laws and not to um, go his own way, but rather to, as it were, funnel the people into God's law. That was God's intent for the king, was to direct the people into God's law. And we see this today, right? The the under-shepherd fathers. You have responsibility for your family. But you are not responsible to lead your family your way. Right? You're responsible to lead your family into God's way. So though you are the authority in your family, and you will answer to God for that, God is the ultimate authority. Husband and wife, it's the same thing. Wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands as unto the Lord, but husband, you are to lead your wife into Christ. Church is the same way. The church has a, a uh, system of leadership set in place with elders and deacons. And yet those elders, for whatever authority that they might have and whatever leadership qualities um, they, they are given by the church, the pastor, the elder, his duty is not to lead the church his own way, but only to lead the church into God's way. Leadership is established for that purpose, and that was the same with Saul. His leadership was established not to be a ruler unto himself, but to submit himself to a higher law, to be subject to the law of God. It was a power check that was enforced through the monarchy, 
uh, throughout the monarchy, excuse me, by the prophets of God. The prophets of God were supposed to check the power of the king and make sure that he was following the law of God, which was the king's direct authority. Now, with respect to this book, we find no, satisfa- no satisfactory um, source in modern literature. What was this book? The book that Samuel had written down. We don't really know. We don't have a book of the Bible written specifically to direct the monarchy. We have a very small portion of Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, that's intended to direct the monarchy, tells the king uh, a little bit about their authority and where it ends. But we don't have this book. It seems that it was lost in history, and that should not surprise us because as you continue reading in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, uh, all the way through, you'll, you'll find that they pretty much ignored the book anyway. No, no king did a very good job, save David, of following God. And so the book was pretty well marginally, uh, marginalized and ignored anyway throughout the history of Israel. Well, the people go home. And Saul goes home as well. And this is where we find out Saul's home is Gibeah for the first time. And he goes home to Gibeah. And the scriptures tell us that there was a band of men whose God's heart, who went with him whose hearts God had touched. Saul was now the Lord's anointed. And whether or not he had been God's first choice or whether or not he was kind of a wimpy guy sometimes, hiding among the stuff and such, he was now God's elect. And with that position came the delegated respect of Israel. Israel was expected to respect and honor this man, not because of his character, but because of his position. He was the Lord's anointed and he was to be treated like it. We considered this principle just a few weeks ago in Romans 13 with respect to government, that governments are said in Scripture to be ordained ministers of God, and to the extent that God has given them authority, now when they usurp their authority, it's a different ballgame, but to the extent that they have authority given by God, we are expected by God to submit ourselves to the government's authority. Their authority is backed by divine authority. They are, the government is God's elected representative in order to make and enforce laws. And we are expected to the degree that they have authority to submit ourselves to it. It's the same thing as well with children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, God tells children to obey their parents in the Lord and to honor their father and their mother. This, author- this, this obedience and this honor is not intended to be because they're good parents. It has nothing to do with the character of the parents. It has to do with the reality that God has ordained uh, your parents over you, that they are your authority. They are the elect of God as representatives of God to you. And whether or not they deserve it by their actions, by their position, God has given them authority over you and you are to submit to it. We see it in the husband-wife relationship that wives are commanded by God to submit themselves to the God-ordained authority of their husbands in every context where God has given the husband that authority. We see this in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. For a wife to resist the authority of the husband where God has given him that authority is for the wife to literally resist God himself as the one who has ordained that authority. We see it in the employee-employer relationship, the servant-master relationship as it's called in our King James Bibles. 
Colossians 3.22 tells us, among many other scriptures, that God has ordained those who are employees, particularly born-again employees in the New Testament, to submit themselves to their employers in every area that that employer has been given legitimate authority by God. As with every other relationship, our obligation extends only as far as their God-given authority. But if I resist the authority of my employer, I am resisting the God-ordained authority over me. I am resisting God himself. And it's also seen in the church relationship. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 speaks about elders which have the responsibility to lead, not by um, a heavy hand, but by a uh, willing example. And yet those who choose to place themselves under the authority of a body of believers are submitting themselves to the leadership of that church as their God-ordained authority and to the degree that God has ordained that authority. Now, when a man goes outside the realm of his authority, of course, there's no obligation there. But to the degree that God has given elders and deacons authority, to resist that authority is to resist the authority of God. And so there's all of these institutions in our lives where we see this concept that to resist the authority that God has ordained, to, re to resist the one that God has elected to that authority is to resist God himself. And that is the mindset that these good men have as they follow Saul. That God had laid it upon the hearts of these men to go with Saul. God had touched their hearts. And this was more important because if you remember last week, we learned from earlier in 1 Samuel 10 that near where Saul's house was in Gibeah, there was a Philistine garrison. The Philistines were still in charge. And because they were still in charge, Saul would need protection. They probably weren't just going to roll over, right? And, and accept the fact that Israel had just ordained themselves a king. After all, the Philistines were in control here. And they would likely be not happy and um, would come after them. And we will see that happen next week. And as we close out the chapter, we see the contrast between these good men whom God had touched to support God's anointed and a group of men who refused this guy, who said, what can he do for us? Who despised him? And the scriptures call them children of Belial. We haven't seen that word Belial come up since 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel 2, remember, it was equated to Hophni and Phinehas, the children of Eli, the high priest at the time. Perhaps you recall that the word Belial literally means worthless and carries with it a, a connotation of being evil or being wicked or being sinful. It's not just about being worthless, but it's about being spiritually worthless. And God literally says that these men who refuse to support the anointed of God are children of worthlessness, children of Belial. They have rejected God because they have rejected God's king. And that's interesting, isn't it? Israel rejects God as king and wants a king. God ordains a king. Now a group of men are rejecting the God-ordained king. These are just rebellious people. Certainly children of Belial. And the scriptures tell us that as contrasted with the men who followed Saul in loyalty to the Lord's anointed, these men, knowing that uh, Saul was chosen by God to lead the nation, despised him. 
did not honor him as they were expected to do. They refused to recognize Saul's authority and in doing so were by extension rejecting God's authority. Now as we've walked through the text today, there have already been several opportunities for the Holy Spirit to apply some truths to our hearts. Perhaps as uh, we mentioned just a few moments ago about authority, something came up in your heart. Maybe it's a, uh, a child in this room who uh, was reminded that your parents are your authority, and that you're to honor them with all your heart, and that when you, when you disobeyed them this week, or when you talked back to them this week, or when you ignored them this week, um, you were doing wrong. And you were reminded that by disobeying or ignoring or not honoring your parents to some degree, you were in fact disobeying God. Say, well, my parents weren't right. They aren't worthy of my respect. It doesn't matter. Because they're God's anointed over you to lead you. Perhaps uh, a wife in this room had a hard week with her husband and was reminded today that the Lord has ordained that the husband be the leader over the wife and you're reminded that by resisting your husband and and the authority that God has given him, you're resisting God. Or maybe an employee is reminded of this in regard to an employer, whatever it might be. The Scriptures called these men who resisted that which God had ordained children of Belial and opposed to God's plan. They were men not interested in serving God, but interested in serving themselves. And God called that worthless. So maybe, maybe that um, struck a chord with someone in this room through the Holy Spirit. But as we close today, I would like us to focus in uh, back on verse 19. And in verse 19, uh, really verses 18 and 19, but specifically verse 19, we see that rejection, that statement of rejection, that you have not rejected me, you have rejected your God. Recall I spoke of the human tendency to magnify offenses, to minimize blessings, that when we're confronted with the wonderful blessings, be they from God or be they from a human agent working on God's behalf, the appreciation tends to be minimal and fleeting. We might thank, we might bless, we might show our appreciation in manifold ways, but then we move on. But we contrast that with the human tendency in the context of offenses, that when a perceived offense has been committed against us, we're tempted to carry these offenses for any length of time, allowing that offense to poison our relationships with that person. We humans are prone to this kind of resentment and cruelty and anger and bitterness. And we briefly contrasted that with God. A God who, in the face of consistent rejection of God's people, determined to love them, to forgive them, to pursue them again and again. A God who saved His people out of all their adversities, out of all their tribulations, only to watch in grief as this people rejected Him time and time again in their own pride, in their own vanity. And in light of that context, I would like us to um, answer two questions in our hearts this morning as we close. First question is this. Are you acting toward God 
according to His goodness toward you? And the second question, are you acting toward others according to God's example toward you? First question, we'll start there. Are you acting toward God according to His goodness toward you? Say, Pastor, what goodness? Oh, I hope there's not too many asking that question this morning. If you're alive in this room today, may I just tell you some of the things that God has done for you? And I, I think everyone's alive. I was looking. I, I, I see breathing and eyeballs, so that's pretty good. If you're alive in this room, you, know, you woke up this morning, your heart was still beating. The sun rose, shines upon this earth, gives you that life-giving heat. The ground brings forth food that you take advantage of every day, many times a day. Rain waters the earth without you needing to coax it or prod it. We don't have to do rain dances or, or uh, um, seed the clouds or anything to get it to rain. God gives you abundant blessings. We often call these common grace. That every day in a thousand little ways, God has been good to you. But if you're a believer in this room, it gets even better, doesn't it? Not only has God been good to you physically, but God has poured out abundant goodness on your behalf spiritually. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us of this in verses 3 through 12. Let me read this for you. This is all just one sentence in the Scripture, by the way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things according to the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. As you read this passage, I hope that your heart is simply overwhelmed with the magnitude of God's goodness to you. That if you have accepted Christ as your Savior by grace through faith in the finished work, if you have recognized that you're a sinner and you have recognized that you cannot get yourself to heaven, that no amount of good works, that no amount of trying, that no amount of... of um, anything that you could possibly do can get yourself to heaven and you have flung yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ, clung to His cross and recognized that it is Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone that can get you to heaven. If you have done that this morning, then as I read that passage and you read about the riches of the glory of His grace that has been poured out unto you, the forgiveness of sins, redemption through His blood, adoption of children, the inheritance that is to come. God literally has pulled you out of the spiritual dumpster and placed you in the king's house. He has redeemed you from a life of cruel and of vicious abuse at the hands of sin. Sin has torn and sin has beaten and sin has shredded and God took that mangled 
sin-destroyed life of yours and He lifted you up and He cleaned off the blood and He healed your wounds and He dressed you in fine garments and He made you beautiful and He set you in the King's house. He gave you a new life from the inside out. He gave you true purpose. The world is every day longing, scraping, clawing, digging, doing whatever they can to find purpose. And you wake up, uh, wake up every morning with a purpose. He gave you true love. The world is doing everything they can to find love, to fill their need for love in any way they possibly can. And even on your darkest day, you have the unchanging love of your Heavenly Father. He gave you peace. The song my wife sang just before the service, Oh, the world wants peace, don't they? I mean, they want physical peace. They're always, always looking for physical peace. World peace. If we do this, we'll get peace. If we do that, we'll get peace. It's never worked, but they keep trying. More education. Peace. Destroy the guns. Peace. It's not working. But they're looking for it. People are looking for peace in their own hearts, aren't they? They're, they're, they're using pills. They're using... The, the consumption of goods, material gain, whatever they can do to try to find peace. And you wake up every morning and whether you're rich or poor, whether you're healthy or you're ill, you have been given a peace through your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the, the thing is, you didn't deserve any of it. You didn't deserve a bit of it. You didn't earn it. God gave it to you. And He gave it to you because He chose to. Because He loves you. But I wonder, for we who are indeed recipients of these blessings in Christ, of God's manifold goodness toward us, if we've not found ourselves having a little bit of Israel's attitude there in 1 Samuel 10, that in light of all of God's goodness, in light of so great salvation, in light of our redemption and our deliverance from the slave market of sin, if we have begun to lose sight of God's goodness, if we've begun treating God and His gifts and His blessings with a bit of disdain rather than with thanksgiving, if we've begun to see the Word of God as a barrier to our happiness rather than the very source of our happiness, if through some deceit of Satan we somehow think that we deserve God's mercy, that we deserve God's grace so that when something bad does happen to us, we look up at God and say, God, what did I do? I don't deserve this. Only to realize that if we got what we deserved, not only would we all be lifeless, but we would all be burning in an eternal hell. Should God's redemptive work not compel us to obedience? Should God's overwhelming grace in our lives not develop in us such a deep love and appreciation for Him that we would literally go to the ends of the world, we would give whatever we might have, we would yield any earthly love, if only we might reflect back to God just a little bit of everything that He's reflected to us just in this day, much less throughout our entire life. Of everything that He's reflected to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Is God not worth our everything? Is God not worth anything He might ask of us? Is God not worth our obedience? Is God not worth our time? In Galatians 2.20, 
Paul wrote this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me. Can we not have that heart that says, if Jesus Christ has given his all for me, I will give my all back. And what stops us? Well, it's this, this human nature thing. It's exactly what, what Israel has done here. They just, they've missed it. And so we start looking for something else and we find that second place and he's hiding among the stuff. And we start to say, wow, maybe this wasn't a good idea. But then he stands up and we're like, oh, yep, yep, fine, superficial. It's going to work out. But we're trading all of God's goodness for that. One more question as we close. We asked, are you acting toward God according to his goodness toward you? Secondly, are you acting toward others according to God's example toward you? When you understand all that God has done for you, it is natural that you should desire to follow Him. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. As a disciple of Christ, it's your privilege to treat others in the manner that God has treated you. Now, we just considered how God has treated us. Complete mercy, unending grace, absolute forgiveness, generosity that abounds. We've already contrasted those thoughts with our natural human tendency, right? Minimize kindness, maximize offense. Kindness, not much. Offense, maximize that. But when we do this, when we maximize the offenses in our lives, when someone wrongs us and we harbor bitterness, resentment, anger, when we hold it against them, when we treat them in light of of real or perceived wrongs, If I may say it this way, when you treat others the way people deserve to be treated in your mind rather than the way God commands us to treat them, we're spurning the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, But be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And it appeals to this reason, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This verse tells you to forgive others, to be kind to others, to be tender-hearted toward others because... They've treated you well. That's not what the verse says. Because you've had a good day that day, don't worry about it on the bad days. It's not what the verse says. The verse says, be tenderhearted, be kind, be forgiving, because Christ has been that to you. How many people do you treat the way Christ has treated you? How many people do you forgive like Christ has forgiven you? How many people have you poured out kindness upon in a manner that reflects the way Christ has poured out kindness upon you? The human in us, the the flesh in us, the, 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 the natural man in us wants that anger, wants that unforgiveness, wants that stinginess because in some way it vindicates us. It gives us power. It makes us feel as though we are right We want to be angry because it reminds us that they're wrong and we're right. We want the world, and especially the offender, to know that we have been wronged. And the best way that we can let them know that we've been wronged is to punish them through our unforgiveness, to punish them through our unkindness. Imagine if Christ did that to us. Imagine if Christ's forgiveness and kindness and tenderheartedness toward us was conditioned on how we treated him. 
How would that change your today? Imagine if Christ was so fickle as to condition His goodness on something having to do with us. You know, I go to the jail every week and that's what many of them think. They say, I'm in here and I just want to know why God did this to me. And it's a great way to remind them or to show them for the first time perhaps that that's not how God works. That God has hands open and He's pouring out His love and He's pouring out His blessings. And He loves them and if they will accept Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, that they will find the spiritual healing they're looking for. But how often do our minds have that same idea? But that's not how God works. Much the opposite. The example of Christ is taught to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21-24. through 24. It says this, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Far from an unforgiving, vindictive, angry God, we find a God who allowed his only begotten Son to be lashed and beaten and scorned and hung on a cross and in conformity to the will of the Father, the Son did not revile. The Son did not answer again. The Son took the beating, took the lashes, took the death without saying anything for you, for your miserable, sinful soul. Because He loves us. And then He says, Love one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. In bearing patiently the scorn of this life, He provided an example that we should do the same. The children of Israel scorned the grace and mercy of God on their behalf. In light of God's redemption, their response was rebellion. Let us not do the same. Whether it be your relationship with God, are you treating God according to His goodness toward you? Or whether it be your relationship with one another, are you treating that um, brother, sister, child, parent, co-worker, church member according to, that, to Christ's treatment of you? Or are you treating them with worldly, fleshly motives? Let us treat those that hurt us as Christ treated us. Let us live for God in light of the redemption that we have received in Christ. Let us be children of our Father in heaven. And the Bible says that in doing so, not only will we please our Heavenly Father, which should be enough, but we'll also have the privilege of shining the light of the, of the truth of God's Word into the hearts of a very dark world. Let's pray together.